this is what shocked us the most, is that the preoperatively, about 56% actually met the qualification for high impact chronic pain, which is the highest total that I have ever seen in any reported study, and certainly higher than any of the other databases that we've looked at, including low back or total joint replacement. Hello, welcome to Myelopathy Matters, the official podcast of the charity myelopathy.org. Where we talk all things degenerative cervical myelopathy from the perspective of the professionals, the researchers and the people living with myelopathy. I'm Ben Davies, neurosurgeon scientist and the founder of myelopathy.org. I'm Ewan Sadler, person with DCM and also the founder of myelopathy.org. This is Myelopathy Matters by myelopathy.org. So today we are returning to the issue of pain, an area that we, the myelopathy.org community, have really been amongst the first to highlight its significance and negative implications for people living with the condition. From my understanding, you and this is a frequent topic of discussion in the support groups. Yes, definitely. A sort of pain or a lack of it in the early onset of myelopathy can drag out the diagnosis, I think, because people tend to put up with mild symptoms, especially if it's not causing too much pain. When I got diagnosed with myelopathy, yes, I had neck pain, but the majority of the pain was around my left shoulder blade. So the association or that being linked to my neck didn't come to light until I had the diagnosis. Before then, I was always told it was muscular. So I'm looking forward to this interview. So today we're joined by Professor Chad Cook. He's a professor of physical therapy and director of clinical research facilitation at Duke University. He has a long and active interest in tackling issues in degenerative cervical myelopathy, including diagnosis and assessment. And I started by asking him how he first became interested in the condition. I'm a clinical physical therapist and I worked at Duke University in Clinic 1E. And it was it was an, really a high level comorbid population, meaning that the sickest patients were there. And we were consistently dealing with patients that we thought may had degenerative myelopathy. And we really didn't have a good way of ruling out or ruling it. So we decided to explore it further. I think that picks up from where I'm familiar a lot with your early work anyway. And that was really about trying to see how you could could detect myelopathy more effectively. What was what was sort of um, what were your findings? What were your experiences of that phase of work? What we found was that the majority of clinical tests that were in the literature were not very good at ruling out myelopathy, meaning that there was always a degree of uncertainty that the person may have myelopathy. So we were prescribing exercise, doing manual therapy, and the patient may have had an underlying case of myelopathy. We weren't able to rule it out. So we decided to investigate a number of tests in a few different studies to try to identify either a test or a series of tests that were able to rule myelopathy out. And we were able to build a cluster that was able to do that. And what was that cluster? The cluster consisted of age greater than 48, a positive Babinski test, a positive Hoffman's test, gait-related uh, changes, and we, we looked at any form of gait-related change 
and then a test called the uh, inverted supinator sign, which was essentially the, a wrong reflex when you test uh, the brachioradialis muscle. And is that something you've continued to use in your practice since then? Indeed it is, and it's actually been picked up by a number of clinicians, especially physiotherapists who in most cases don't have the capacity to use imaging or any additional testing to determine if a person has myelopathy. So they have to use uh, the best thing possible. And right now in the literature, that's the most sensitive collection of tests. Did you find it missed anybody? Did it ever miss any cases of myelopathy? It did. Um, it, typically in a, in a hundred people, it would miss about three. Uh, so that's actually pretty accurate with respect to clinical tests, but it's certainly not perfect. And what was your experience now sort of teaching those sort of tools? Because my my sense a little bit with the, the neurological exam, those sort of reflexes, et cetera, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of experience that needs to go into both eliciting those tests, but also interpreting them a little bit. And that can perhaps be not so easy for people who see myelopathy very infrequently or perform that very infrequently. What, what's your experience of that? Uh, it's the same as yours, um, exactly. It it takes, I think, a lot of exposure to myelopathy to, to really understand it and to recognize it. You know, my, my biggest experience was that the majority of clinicians that we trained had never even heard of it and didn't know what to look for. So if anything, we opened the door for them to recognize that there is a potential uh, likelihood that this person could have myelopathy. So if anything, we just, we opened their eyes to that. For those that started seeing it more often, I think it's very subtle, uh, especially those early onset cases of myelopathy. They look so much like just age-related changes and uh, trying to differentiate those. You know, if anything, like I said, we open the door for clinicians. It's, it's, uh, it's a start. Mm-hmm. I think that's so true. And you were very struck by that a quote that you shared with us. Um, you may not have seen myelopathy, but myelopathy has seen you. I think that is... That is such a powerful and, 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 you know, apt, apt statement, really. I think it is. To think back at all, I practiced in the state of Florida for nine years, and it's where a lot of the retired population goes. So it's an older population. And we know there's a positive correlation, obviously, with myelopathy and older age. So I just think back at how many patients I probably saw that had underlying myelopathy that I didn't recognize because I didn't know what to look for. I wanted to then to turn your attention a little bit more to the sort of recent thrust of, of some of the work that's crossed paths with, with myelopathy, which is very much around the subject of pain, which we've been very interested in as a community, having really started this charity and polled the community on what their experiences were and found this big signal that, you know, they were affected by, by pain. And certainly as a surgeon, um, you know, my textbooks tell me that myelopathy is a painless condition. So I was very fascinated to to, to hear more about what, what you've been going on. But what, perhaps we could start by, you know, what led you to look at pain specifically? Well, I have a number of colleagues that are interested in pain, and, and certainly I, I, it's an interest of mine too. And as you know, the pain experience is, it's very different across different populations. So our interest recently has been looking at how social factors influence a person's pain experience. We were interested in looking at myelopathy because like you, I have been told historically, this is a very biological condition. It is very physiological. In other words, there's, there's always a structural reason behind it. So we were interested in looking at whether or not social factors would actually influence a person's perception of pain with myelopathy. And 
I had the opportunity to look at a database, which had well over 800 individuals in it. And that's basically the route that we took. And you specifically use this concept of high impact chronic pain, which is, is a new concept to me. Uh, what, what is that? It's a concept that was created in the mid, uh, well, about 2016 by the NIH. And it's an attempt to try to discriminate the different types of chronic pain that we see. And as a surgeon, you know, people respond differently to pain. Some are completely debilitated or are, they just, it, it absolutely floors them. Whereas other individuals can handle it. They, they, uh, they accommodate to their pain. The idea behind high impact chronic pain is looking at, rather than looking at pain intensity, it looks more at pain interference and how pain has actually altered the lifestyle of that individual. So it is a composite measure of both longevity of pain and how much that pain has actually influenced their activities of daily living or their work or their social engagements. It's a, it is something that can be measured uh, and it tends to be a much higher level than what your average chronic pain experience a person has. So just to recap, you're looking at a combination of it, a sort of an intensity threshold, but also a sort of impact on life threshold, maybe disability or something to reach that definition that that individual has high impact chronic pain. Indeed. And, and a key piece to that is also the longevity ratio, too, that has to be NIH says three months or more. In our study, we actually said 12 months or more, because we know that once you've lived with chronic pain for a very long time, it, it really changes your mindset. On, on how you handle everyday activities. Mm -hmm. So perhaps you could introduce us to how you applied that then to, to that database of, of patients that you had. Well, it's a fairly remarkable database and it, it actually captures uh, a wealth of material. So we actually used five different variables to create a variable for high impact chronic pain. We had variables for uh, activities of daily living. We had variables for social activities. We had various variables for work. We also had a duration variable that told us how long that person had experienced pain. And we added another variable in, in which it actually asked the patient how much pain was, how severe was their pain in their perception. So we used the highest score on that. So they had to have long, long-term pain. They had to tell us that that pain was very severe and they had to report a major restriction in any of their social activity daily activities of daily living or work. So what were the findings then when you applied that and explored that in, in the database? Interestingly enough, and this is what shocked us the most, is that the preoperatively before these individuals who were diagnosed with degenerative myelopathy, about 56% actually met the qualification for high impact chronic pain, which is the highest total that I have ever seen in any reported um, study, and certainly higher than any of the other databases that we've looked at, including low back or total joint replacement. So very, very high numbers of individuals with high impact chronic pain. I think what was probably most remarkable was that over time, because we, we have data that goes out at one year and two years, over time, that designation of high impact chronic pain actually declined quite a bit. Actually, only about 16% had high impact chronic pain after surgery at a one year time period. And that number stayed fairly stable at two years. 
That was a very remarkable finding for me as well, because I know, again, my textbooks are surgeon speaking that we, we often don't really discuss pain, although it comes up in questions because we don't want to promise anything. We were taught that really we're not addressing the arthritis that might have driven myelopathy. We're trying to decompress the spinal cord. And I think that was a quite a significant finding that's going to have massive implications for how we, we talk to people undergoing surgery and, and what to expect. Well, we kind of had a who's who of authors on the paper. Um, they were all neurosurgeons, some of the top neurosurgeons in the United States. And they were also fairly gobsmacked from the findings. And like you, I, I mean, I've written three book chapters on cervical myelopathy, and I always preface the chapter by saying that surgery is supposed to either maintain or reduce the risk of further complications. And what we're seeing here, and again, this is a, it's an observational study. We're not comparing it against anything, but this is a pretty remarkable change. And it's not only a remarkable change in a person's outcomes, because we saw that too, but we saw high impact chronic pain, which is supposed to be a fairly static designation, something that's not supposed to change. We saw dramatic changes in that. And just to give perspective in numbers, there were 458 individuals out of the 800 and something that were diagnosed preoperatively with high impact chronic pain. That number decreased by 367 over the time frame of our study. So we're very optimistic. Um, since then, we've looked at the literature. There are two other studies that, that have reported fairly remarkable improvements and outcomes after surgery with myelopathy. So maybe this is, maybe it's time to start rethinking. I think that's, that's very true. And I mean, we've approached pain uh, at myelopathy.org slightly different fashion. We were just looking at really what we should be measuring studies. We identified that there was this pain uh, demand to be measured by, by people living with myelopathy. The professionals in certain sections have been fairly reticent to engage with that, you know, this common theme that, you know, myelopathy isn't a painful condition. I think this, this data is really helpful for that message that actually there is a pain burden and it needs to be measured and considered. And I just wondered on that topic, what your early experience has been perhaps sharing this information more widely than your, your co-authors and what's been the reception more broadly amongst other professionals? I would say it's been mostly mixed. I think the surgical profession is very optimistic about this, which they should be, I think. And again, it's, you know, as a, as a researcher, I look at this as an observational study. There's, there's no causation, but we know, I mean, you've seen thousands of patients with this condition. They don't randomly improve. They just don't do that. So Again, I, I understand their optimism, and as a physio, I'm very optimistic about that, too. Most of the conservative care group uh, is really pushing for a direct comparison between surgery and maybe a conservative approach. And as you likely know, and your listeners probably know, there aren't high-quality studies that have, that have done that yet. And whether or not that's an appropriate comparison, it's yet to be determined, but it would allow uh, better causation, I think, on that surgical side. But getting a little bit of both of that, I, I think patients' eyes have been opened and I think it potentially gives an opportunity for an approach that might be useful for something that is incredibly debilitating. I think that's a really interesting point. And I think just coming on to that, my, my sense is obviously in the more advanced stages of the disease, there would never be any equipoise that is balanced to randomize people to a surgery no surgery group but certainly in that earlier stage i think there is a big question now isn't there about whether we should be considering pain as an indication 
to to favor surgery and i think that that trial certainly certainly needs needs to be done absolutely completely agree and i appreciate you saying that the spectrum of the disease is actually quite wide and i agree with you if you if you're getting someone that has a high level of severity i don't think a conservative approach is going to make a remarkable change in that person but those early stages absolutely there may be an opportunity there I just wanted to pick up on a few technical parts of the study just to, to fully understand it. I guess the first is to really understand the database itself, because you mentioned, obviously, this is a sort of relook at a data that's already there. There will be some biases, perhaps, in, in what's formed that database. So perhaps you could just introduce us how that data has come together and what might be the implications for interpreting your results from that. Well, in the United States, I think uh, a lot of the surgeons, neurosurgeons and orthopedic surgeons, recognize that. They were doing a lot of surgery, but weren't really capturing data to assess the effectiveness of that. So they created, the, it's called the NeuroPoint QOD database. I think it initiated in 2013. It now involves a number of facilities and surgeons from the United States and Canada. And it allows a repository of all of these uh, surgical approaches to get data dumped into one given area. And then a few individuals will be selectively given data to run analyses on. And uh, we were given an opportunity to look at a subset of the cervical myelopathy database that was primarily driven by stenosis-related myelopathic conditions. And so the database is mostly people having surgery. You haven't got that that non-operative arm to, to look at. You are correct. There are no non-operative aspects to this. It's purely surgery. So obviously that's a weakness because there's nothing to compare it to. I think a strength is is they really do two things, essentially. They spend a lot of money on the administration of collecting the data. So there are fewer missing values than what you would normally see in a database repository. I think the second most important piece is they capture a lot of really meaningful data, a lot of psychological data, a lot of social data, and certainly biological measures to give us some perspective of the severity of the patient population so it's been a nice data set to work with mm-hmm. sounds it and i just wanted to touch on also the, the decision that you measured a lot of this outcome at three months and i think we've touched a little bit on the conversation here that there is a long-lasting effect of pain and my experience certainly working with this charity now is that often the impact of pain doesn't really come to the forefront until we extend well beyond the functional recovery period of of the surgery. I just wonder what your thoughts were on that, whether that had an implication for for your study. Oh, certainly it would. And I'll give you the reasoning behind it. Uh, We looked in the literature to see where the majority of change occurred with respect to pain. And the only paper we found that really did a nice longitudinal or over time assessment was Zhang and colleagues from 2018. And they reported that the majority, the biggest change you see percentage-wise is within that first to second week. So we knew that we wanted to capture something a little shorter and and to reflect that early change. The other challenge was the QOD has dedicated time points in which it captures data. So we had a three-month time point in which there was really robust or strong data. And then we had one year. And we knew we didn't want to go all the way out and capture everything that happened in that one year because it would diminish our opportunity to compare things over time. So we decided on three months and that three month time frame actually did capture a lot of change in an individual, which again made us more optimistic that you see 
fairly dramatic change in a three-month period of time with respect to a person's report of pain. And I think the other thing then is we, we haven't really touched on, you, you brought up your interest in, in the social determinants of pain. Was it possible to sort of identify key predictors or you know, certain groups of individuals more likely to be in that high-impact chronic pain category? Indeed. And interestingly enough, in many previous studies, primarily with lumbar surgery, and I, and I would argue that the decision to have low back surgery is very different than the decision to have surgery for degenerative cervical myelopathy. The importance of one is much higher than the other. And I think myelopathy is a no-brainer type surgery. But what we found was that pretty much the same thing that we had been finding in lumbar surgery, that social factors influence outcomes dramatically. So even in a very biological condition, something that shouldn't be influenced by external factors, it should be primarily driven by anatomy and physiology, we found that the social factors were the strongest predictors of individuals either staying in the high-impact chronic pain group, which we called stable high pain, or a person transitioning from no high-impact chronic pain to high-impact chronic pain, which was a very small population. So the social factors still matter, and they're very strong predictors And it's certainly something to consider, I think, in the decision-making process. So what do you mean by social determinants? Social determinants are now a term that are used by a lot of public policy leaders in identifying factors in society that may disadvantage a person. They'll disadvantage their ability to get good jobs, their health, and just progressing onward with their life. And unfortunately, there are a number of very well-known social determinants that are essentially across the country and across the world. And these include things such as race, um, income, education, uh, whether a person is able to work or not. In some places, sex of an individual is considered a social determinant. So these factors that make us up, that sometimes we are just disadvantaged if we fall on one side of that, our work has shown that a combination of these features tends to be more important than just one. That if you have low education, if you don't have a job and you're not white, um, things are stacked against you fairly heavily uh, with respect to a number of features, including your health. So do you mind articulating what specifically those social factors were that affected uh, the pain experience? The ones that were significant as predictors in our study were race, education, social economic status. We did not find work to be a predictor in that, but those other factors, race, education, and social economic status, were certainly strong predictors. And just specifically the nuances of those factors, we're talking sort of low educational status, what types of race? My apologies, yes. Non-white race was a predictor, and it's a big group, but Certainly a non-white race here in North America was factored in high school or less education and the lower quartile on the socioeconomic status. Those were the predictors. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I was looking very detailed at the, the group that transitioned from no pain to a high impact pain. And they were slightly different to my look at the data. Is that right? They were possibly not those sorts of candidates in more broadly speaking. Is that fair? But they were younger. I think that's the biggest difference, but they did meet the race category. I think 
it's difficult to, because we modeled basically predictors, there were only 39 that transitioned to high impact chronic pain. So what we might be looking at in that case is statistical artifact because the model isn't strong enough. But overall, within all the categories, because we actually compared them against the low pain group, low pain at baseline, low pain at three months, social factors were the strongest in all three groups. And in general, they, they were the drivers, I think, of in, for most of the predictions. And just if we think more broadly, I think beyond beyond DCM, your wider experience, why why is there this link between social determinants and this impact of pain? I think we're still sorting that out. I think everyone's still sorting that out, but we've actually performed a number of studies. And even to the point where we've asked the patients themselves, what sort of services do you need? What do you lack? What can we do to make this work? And I think it boils down to a lot of factors in combination. They just don't have the same support system that other individuals have. They don't have the ability to increase their physical activity because maybe they're in a place where they can't take a walk or they they can't exercise. There are pressures on them financially that are not on other individuals. I think in many cases they're going into a situation disadvantaged versus others and just getting out of that hole in the first place. We have a high percentage of individuals that with the socioeconomic status that are also on disability here in the United States. And once you're on disability in the States, it's very difficult to get out of that. So I think it's a combination of factors. It's highly frustrating as a caregiver because I don't know exactly what to do when I identify someone who is at social risk. And we've placed a social risk factor screening in and this surgical population now and we're assigning them a health coach to help them navigate care. But beyond that, I don't think we know well, well enough what to do uh, with this population. That's, that's really fascinating. And I, I think a critical issue, isn't it? It's a all well and good identifying a problem, but ultimately you want to try and try and resolve or help, help problems in, in the main. Final few questions. I wanted to get your perspective now, having identified this pain burden, about perhaps how we should be thinking about assessing pain going forward. I mean, I've articulated or alluded to earlier that perhaps pain isn't really assessed, certainly by surgeons, often in, in clinic or doesn't really enter the equation. I think the evidence here is clearly it now needs to, but the question is sort of how, how are we going to explore and measure that, do you think, routinely? Well, I, I really appreciate the question because I think if we don't ask the right question, we don't get the correct answer. And in many cases, how we measure pain may not be relevant to the individual in front of us. And historically, we've used pain intensity, which certainly is an interesting measure and certainly a measure of severity. But newer ways of measuring pain, such as pain interference, may give us a better perspective on how much a person's pain is actually interfering with their lifestyle. And whether or not we use prospectively high-impact chronic pain as a measure it is a better designation to find out, I think, who is really struggling with their current condition because it, it combines changes in their social activities and their ADLs and work with the longevity of their pain and the intensity of their pain. It's a composite measure that looks at a number of things at one time. So with respect to your question, I think looking at things differently probably is a better approach. I'm, I am optimistic about tools such as the PROMISE the, the PROMISE 29.2 uh, 
actually has a number of constructs, including pain intensity, pain interference, ADL, sleep, depression, anxiety, a number of features that I think are part of the soup that occurs when somebody is in chronic pain. And I think something like that will probably give us better perspective of, of how severe that person's condition is. So final, final question, really, I think, how would you like this study to be used broadly by, by professionals? By professionals, I hope it gives them a different elevator speech to discuss with their patients so that they can say that there is literature and a relatively large sample of over 800 individuals. And the majority of those individuals actually did very well, extremely well in some cases after surgery. So our typical tagline, which I've been saying for years, that surgery will probably keep you where you're at that wasn't really supported in our study. So professionally having that open conversation with the patient is if I'm a patient, I my takeaway from this is I think there might be hope with the appropriate approach, good surgeon, appropriate candidate, that that individual may actually improve. Um, we've seen that now in three studies. And although they're observational only, these are real world analyses that demonstrate one and two year outcomes. So I, I think there's optimism there. What a fantastic interview. So many far ranging topics covered there, Ewan. What were your take homes from listening? Do you know what? I'm so glad as a person with DCM, there are no studies looking into the association of pain and myelopathy. I remember we had a conversation back in 2015 and you were taken back by the amount of people in the support group that had chronic pain due to myelopathy. And I think one of the first surveys we ran was to have a better understanding of pain in myelopathy. No, you're absolutely right. That survey was sort of, I guess, really the origins of myelopathy.org, wasn't it? We, at that point, were trying to design this regenerative medicine trial and understand what we should be, we should be measuring. And we were looking really to to validate that you know people wanted their hands and, and walking balance to get better but there was this huge signal that came out that actually also pain and recovering from pain was incredibly uh, important and and i think this is really compelling evidence you know as i've mentioned we've encountered strong opposition amongst professionals to the idea that pain is an important part of dcm but this study clearly shows that pain is a very much prominent part of the condition you know it's experienced by most and significantly in around half Further, where present initially, it also responds to surgical treatment, making it more likely to be part of the disease rather than some coexisting problem. And I think this is really important because my experience is that patients want to have an idea of what to expect after surgery. And this data can help discuss the area of pain, which so far as surgeons particularly, we've often avoided. Also, when we think of pain with myelopathy, we usually associate it with nerve pain. I think the first thing I noticed coming around from surgery is that my arm pain had gone. But pain isn't always caused by nerve pain. Most of the pain people talk about in the support group is caused by muscle spasms. It's a daily struggle for a lot of us and something I think needs to be looked at in great detail, I think. No, it's a really complex beast. And I, and, I, and I think, you know, even my understanding is improving just talking to these different experts. We had those excellent podcast interviews with uh, Abdul Lalkin, uh, for example, which really covered the complexity of trying to understand the experience of pain and its impact. And, and absolutely, we now need to really work harder, I think, to address how we can how we can make that experience better. 
So next month, we're talking about our new remote monitoring system for myelopathy called MoveMed, now ready for community testing. We'll be joined by Alvaro Yanis, Chief Scientific Officer of the platform, to understand what the platform can do and where it needs to go next. Thanks very much to Chad Cook for joining us. This was Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. To keep up to date with the latest in the field of degenerative cervical myelopathy, why not subscribe on your favourite podcast app, where you'll also find all of our previous episodes. There's lots more information about the condition and how to access support at myelopathy.org. But if you've got a question about myelopathy or an experience to share, we'd love to hear it. Please get in touch at ben at myelopathy.org. Until next time, goodbye.